This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter. This is Ben Sears at LazarusHP05 on AOL Instant Messenger. What? (laughs) (laughs) Was that really your AIM? Yeah. Wow. In high school. Okay. Okay. That was before I knew any better. (laughs) Um, And this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic via genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find more of our work at at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also like us on Facebook and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer. And uh, also, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. At the minimum rate of $1 per month, you get access to exclusive um, recordings specifically for Patreon uh, supporters. I'm your aforementioned host, Matt Hurt, and with me today is recurring co-host and contributing reviewer for obsessiveviewer.com, Mr. Ben Sears. How's it going, Ben? Pretty good. I'm excited to talk about some great movies. Yes. Um, Would you say that it's? uh, uh, I can't. I don't. I did not have one. Yeah. Um, Whatever you're gonna say, I probably wouldn't. To podcast about these movies, would it be to to live, or um, would you suggest that listeners of this episode should listen to it between the hours of five and seven? No, I probably still wouldn't. Okay, yeah, me neither. <laughs> okay, well, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so today on the podcast, we're going to be continuing our Ebert's Great Movies List review series um, in which we each pick a movie uh, from the Roger Ebert's Great Movies List. Um, this is part seven. We're going to be covering 1952's Ikiru and 1962's Cleo from 5 to 7. And not to jump ahead or anything, but there's going to be a nice surprise when we when we pick our titles for part 8. So, oh boy. Leave you guys leave you guys uh don't skip ahead. Yeah, you please don't skip ahead. We'll know <laughs> we'll know whether you did or not. We will. We will. Although, you know, it would be nice if you do skip ahead because I I really put a lot of time into making those timestamps on the on the, <laughs> on the show notes. So, um so yeah, so we're going to review each and Cleo from five to seven. But first, um, there's some news that broke this week. Uh, the day after Tiny and I recorded the latest episode of Tower Junkies, so we could not uh, include it in that episode. Um, but the there are a few big Stephen King things happened um, related to movies and TV. Um, first of all, uh, just just kind of just to plug it, uh, you can check out Tiny and Mai's uh, reviews of the stand miniseries on CBS all access on tower junkies. Um, yeah, check that out. We did three episodes all about that miniseries. I think three, yeah, three episodes. Um, yeah, it was something, but, uh, but yeah, but we're on obsessive viewer now. So, <laughs> uh, the news that broke, there were three things that came out that I'll just recount real quick. And then we can talk about the kind of big Apple TV plus one. Um, one is that Edgar Wright is working on an adaptation of the running man, which is going to be more, um, more closely to, uh, close to the book than the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie was. Um, have you seen or read the running man? 
a very long time ago. Okay, like I've not grade school. Yeah, I haven't seen it or even read it, but yeah. But Edgar Wright, I'm excited about that. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, Creep Show was renewed for season three, so that's cool. But also, um, Stephen King, uh, on the kind of press tour for um, Lisey's story, which we'll talk about here in a second, um, hinted or said that he and J.J. Abrams are working on a horror anthology show um, called Tiny Horrors or something. Um, nothing confirmed or anything, but um, yeah, that just has me excited because I like anthologies and I like Stephen King. Um, so look forward to my Stephen King anthology spinoff podcast. Um, and then the third thing that was announced, and this is the big one that we'll talk about in more detail, is Ben, they announced the um, casting and the information about the first first look images and everything about Lisey's story, which is going to be an eight episode um, miniseries on Apple TV Plus adapted from... Mr. King's novel of the same name and the adaptation uh, has every every episode of the adaptation is going to be written by Mr. Stephen King. Um so I'm excited about that. Ben, how did you feel about this news and uh do you have any uh any ties to Lisey's story or any knowledge about it? Um I'm pretending that you didn't <laughs> answer that off mic. <laughs> I uh, had no idea what it was, uh, what it's about. I still don't really, uh, but I'm excited to check it out. I'm uh, the obsessive viewers resident uh, Apple TV Plus right. guy, so um, I'll probably check it out when it comes out. Nice. Um, yeah, honestly, this so Lisey's story is a bit of a blind spot for me, if I'm being honest. So I haven't read the book. But what I do know about it is that um, it's one of, if not his number one favorite book that he's written, Stephen King's favorite story that he's written. Um, and it stars, it's going to star um, Julianne Moore, Clive Owen, Dane DeHaan, um, and add, no, <laughs> Joan Allen, Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, Ron Cephas, Jones, um, they'll, they'll all be in it. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be from Bad Robot and J.J. Abrams on Apple TV Plus. Um, they haven't announced the release date, which is crazy to me. <laughs> I think they said sometime in summer. Yes. And that makes me really anxious because the funny thing is Tiny and I just finished our whole big review series on the stand, which the stand is a mammoth of a novel and it had um, an adaptation that we reviewed. And then the new adaptation that we reviewed all told, we did eight episodes worth of on tower junkies worth of the stand coverage. And uh, that took us eight months. (laughs) Um, And, I think eight months. Yeah, probably. It, it took us a, lo- a long time, essentially. Not eight months. I think eight months to record each one because we did that in a vacuum. But anyway, um, it was a very long journey and everything. And then the day after we finished that and I was like about to breathe a sigh of relief and think like, oh, it's going to be nice to do like one-off episodes and finally do, like finally get back to just like reviewing a novel one week and then maybe a miniseries another week or maybe a, a TV show or whatever. Um, and then they announced this. It's like, okay, it's going to be eight episodes. There's a, there's a novel that we'll have to review first. And it's going to be sometime in the summer. So, um, yeah. So that's that's going to be fun. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's it should be exciting. How as someone who's not not familiar with the story or anything, um, how excited are you about it? Are you interested in it? And what's your history with Stephen King's? We don't have to go too deep into that because, of course, this is the obsessive viewer, not Tower <laughs> Junkies. Um, I I have read at least the first two Dark Tower books. Nice. I might have read. I know I've read at least half of the third. I might have finished that. I know I stopped midway through either the third or fourth book, but I can't remember which now. Um, And that is it uh, as far as the books. Um, Movies, I I just watched The Shining the other day. Nice. Uh, I had seen it before, but um, I – let's see. Shawshank Redemption – I think that might be about it. I'm sure there's more, but I, that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll probably check it out. I, I don't do a whole lot of TV these days, but um, you, you probably said this already. Is it a limited series or, uh, yes, it'll be a limited series. So only eight episodes. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. I can do that. Nice. Nice. Um, if timing works out, we can have you on Tower Junkies to talk about it with us. Sure. Um, we'll, we'll figure out logistics off mic. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the latest news. Um, but I don't really have much else in the way of news or anything. So should we dive into our Ebert's Great Movies reviews? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. So, um, of course, at the top of this, this is our seventh installment of our Ebert's Great Movies List Review Series, um, kind of to run the quote from, to read the quote from Ebert uh, regarding this review, or this essay series that he uh, spent a lot of time writing was, one of the gifts a movie lover can give another is the title of a wonderful film they have not yet discovered. Here are more than 300 reconsiderations and appreciations of movies from the distant past to the recent past, all of movies that I consider worthy of being called great. So, obviously, the concept for this review series is that Ben and I each select a single movie from Roger Ebert's Great Movies list and then review and discuss them both in a, spe- in a special series of podcast episodes on The Obsessive Viewer. So, having said that, I'm going to roll the uh, jingle thing, the the drop, the something, <laughs> I don't know, um, the... What's uh, the bumper music for this segment of the podcast? No name is more synonymous with film criticism than Roger Ebert's. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and children. People say, do film critics have too much power? For those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. We can help a movie. We can help a movie by sharing our enthusiasm. We can't necessarily hurt a movie that is destined to be a big hit anyway. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. And then Roger Ebert gets up. What I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement is nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Let us all unite! All right. Well, yeah, here we go. Uh, this is part seven, as I, as I said. So we're going to be talking about Ikaru and Cleo from five to seven. And Ben, as we usually do on this, on this, we're going chronologically from release date. So I have um, made sure to make the first one be my pick. <laughs> so Ikaru, are you excited to talk about Ikaru? Very excited. All right. So um, 
kind of give a to, to give a brief overview. Ikiru is uh, directed by Akira Kurosawa, who last time on this series of episodes on part six we reviewed Yojimbo. And uh, the plot summary is a bureaucrat uh, tries to find a, a meaning in his life after he discovers he has terminal cancer. It uh, stars uh, Takashi Shimuro uh, as, um, oh my god, why can't I remember? Watanabe. Watanabe, yes. Kenji? Kenji Watanabe. Uh, Watanabe. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's directed by the, the great and... Uh, um, it, it, incredible <laughs> um so the reason that i picked this uh movie for this series for this installment of this series is specifically because um if you guys remember from the last episode uh that we did on this um you had pitched you your your suggestion was cleo from five to seven i had not known anything about it mm-hmm. i was just kind of living in the moment of like, oh God, Yojimba was so great. I love Kurosawa <laughs> and everything. And then you said, like Cleo's plot summary had something to do with cancer. And I was like, oh, cancer, cancer. He said cancer. <laughs> so, okay, Ikiru, I'm going to pick Ikiru because it's about a guy with cancer. So that's the reason why I picked this one. And uh, Ben, this was your second ever Kurosawa movie? Correct. Okay, how did you feel about it? And how did you feel about it compared to Yojimbo? Um, you know, I think... <sighs> At least personally speaking, I feel like for me and maybe a lot of other people, uh, Kurosawa gets this reputation as a samurai director, or at mm-hmm. least for for the lay people, the neophytes, the right. people that aren't super familiar with his career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I honestly, I didn't know um, that he made a whole lot of non-samurai movies. I was actually kind of hoping that a samurai would pop out at some point and <laughs> yeah. uh, cut the cancer out of him or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, nice. My initial reaction, and I'm blaming this on the sleepiness that I was fighting, uh, uh, was it was good in the moment. Uh, I really liked the first half. The second half kind of slows down noticeably, I would say, Um, especially the last like 45 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, And I was honestly, I was kind of annoyed at first at the last 45 minutes. Interesting. And we can kind of get into why a little bit later, but Mm. uh, having a little more time for it to marinate with me, I appreciated that a little bit more. Okay. Uh, and especially after reading uh, Ebert's essay on this. So, nice. uh, yeah, really, really great, really solid, uh, just really human story mm-hmm. about uh, something that I I was struggling to think of any, any other films that have kind of mirrored what he or the story that he was trying to tell here. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there are just tons out there. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the way that it was done here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. I, cause I, I had seen this movie once before when I was like, like a teenager. So, okay. and like, okay. Like I've talked a lot about how like, okay, when I was a teenager and I was like formulating my, my movie, like sensibilities and everything, I was very much into snobbish. Like, okay, this is, 
this is a movie that I've never heard of that's high up on the <laughs> IMDb Top 250. So I'm going to watch this movie, and I'm going to love this movie unconditionally. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, it, but the funny thing is, is like that's when I was a teenager, and like seeing this movie. Like, this was after I had gone through a lot of his samurai movies. Like, Seven Samurai, I still count as my favorite movie of all time. Like, that is, blanket statement, the best film that I've ever seen. Um, for a multitude of reasons. That we'll get to because it's on the list. But um, but I had also seen Throne of Blood and Yojimbo and Sanjuro and uh, some of his other like uh hidden fortress hidden fortress some of his other like period feudal japan samurai movies Mm -hmm. and so going into a contemporary kurosawa movie like this or high and low or stray dog which stray dog is fucking phenomenal um but going into that at such a young age like this movie is so much like you said, it's a very human story, and it is a story that is so contingent on a human experience and telling a story through layers of of pain and silence mm-hmm. that, frankly, a <laughs> a sixteen year old Matt who was all <laughs> had a fucking boner for samurai movies was not going to grasp at all, right? And so I didn't have many memories of this movie. I even counted it as a first viewing on Letterboxd when I checked into it. But yeah, all that's to say that this, like this viewing of it just really, really hit home with me. Like it really resonated in a, in a huge way. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way that the story plays out with, with Watanabe's whole experience of like dealing with his diagnosis and like it's not so much him him coming to terms with it or or creating um that like dealing with the drama of like oh i have cancer so i'm going to die it was more like a the fuck have i done with my life yeah. and how can i live my life in the last days of my life that is the kind of the big blanket statement of the whole movie and it really just really resonated with me and moved me not so much because I work in an office job <laughs> um, <laughs> with a lot of papers with a lot of paper stamping. yes mm-hmm. it's it's so funny cuz like I actually had uh, cuz I go into the office 3 times a week specifically to sort paper <laughs> like that is specifically what I fucking do yeah and like it's not a lot like it's fine I go in and work for a few hours and then go home and and do uh digital filing and stuff um <laughs> uh, and processing but uh, just like a few weeks ago, like we had like this big thing where we had to mail out 17,000 letters. Um, and I had to like, I had to go down to the mailroom, get all 17,000 of these things, bring them up to my desk. And I shit you not. I, the reason that I had to do that was because I had to pull three out of that stack <laughs> So that I could send them in a different way. Oh no! Um, and it wasn't too. It was fine. Like they were in order of zip code, so it was fine. I could find them easily. Yeah. But it's like having that experience, and then seeing Ikiru, which like the set design is fucking gorgeous, right? Um, in that very like crazy way, <laughs> um, crazy busy way, because like it's literally stacks and stacks of paper, um. And it's it's just so evocative of of exactly what emotional state 
Watanabe's in 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 his job. Yeah, be I mean, even before you really learn anything about him, mm-hmm. you see his like office setup, yeah, uh, and all the papers behind him and on his desk and just everywhere, mm-hmm. and you really get a sense for what his life is like just without even even before any kind of plot develops or you learn more about him. Yeah. It's, it's a really nice way of, uh, of just establishing this character. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's, it's just such a great introduction introduction and the movie is kind of, and we'll, we'll do like a separate spoiler section, I'm sure. But, the movie's separated into a couple di- or a few different sections. Yeah. And it's interesting because each act is kind of ushered in by in a, a voiceover narration. Um, how'd you feel about that kind of storytelling technique, that narrative technique that was employed in this movie? I was on board with it. I, nice. I don't know of a better way to uh, frame the story or mm-hmm. kind of inform the audience of the situation or, uh, you know, that without, without a, a voiceover. Yeah. And it wasn't too like intrusive. Right. Like it's, it's really easy with voiceovers to be too distracting or mm-hmm. too, uh, redundant even. Yeah. There's something to the way that it, it really introduces us to each segment of the movie. And it's, it's just the right of right amount of that because it's not overbearing. It's not pervasive throughout the movie. It's just like an introductory thing. Like this is your like literally. It says they say this is our protagonist. Um, he's got some bad news, um, and he's gonna try to make uh, make good news out of it or whatever. <laughs> he they doesn't say anything like that. But anyway, um, in each section, it's kind of introduced in a different way that way. But like the kind of tone of that has this cadence to it or the, or this tone to it. That's like, um, it, it almost makes it kind of sound and maybe I'm projecting onto it, but it kind of sounds like a little bit of a cautionary kind of tale. Like, I don't know exactly. Like there may be a specific like theatrical term for it, but it has like this thing that it reminds me of, um, Oh God, there's a movie that it reminds me specifically of, um, a more modern movie that it's so much so that I'm, I'm wondering if it was, um, influenced by it, but I can't, I can't place what the movie is, but anyway, it might come back to me. It might not, but, um, it just has this, like, this is, this is Watanabe. This is his life. This is him facing what is possibly, probably going to be the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has this cautionary tale to it. Like, Almost, it's almost like it's turning to the camera and saying, saying to us, like, how, what's your life like? <laughs> like how, right. How, how, what how, have you done? Yeah. What have you done? Um, yeah. I don't know. So maybe, I don't know if that, did that, uh, did that come across to you at all? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And so you said something about, um, were, were you talking about like, uh, influences mm-hmm. uh, and everything? Um, there's one movie in particular. That this viewing of this movie of if Ikiru made me really reflect on um, the influence it had on it. So, have you seen E2 Mama Tambien? No. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, 
it reminded me of that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, just this, because a, a big portion of this movie is Watanabe kind of wandering the city. And he comes across, like, he, he meets a, um, a a writer who, like, he tells a story to him, and then the writer takes him out on a night on the town. Yeah. And then from there it goes into, uh, it, it transitions into him spending time with a coworker or employee that he had, um, and then spending more time with her. And there's just something, I don't know, it, it, just, it, it just feels so... Um, it it reminded me so much of of um, Alfonso Cuarón's um, Itumama Tambien, which okay. I just saw like a couple years ago. Um, anyway, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, this was your first viewing since you saw it as a teenager, correct? Okay, yep. And it's it's widely regarded as one of one of Kurosawa's best movies. And I, I'll agree with that. I, I do think it is, I mean, spoiler alert, I rated it five stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I might drop it down to four and a half, but that's all semantics and kind of just not really. Right. What's relevant, the difference? Exactly. Well, well, half a star, but, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but I can't really quantify why or anything. Yeah. But it's just, it's fascinating because in terms of Kurosawa's, uh, his his breadth of work like he directed 30 movies this movie came out in 1952 this was two years after Rashomon which is highly regarded and a heralded yeah. movie um, and rightfully so and then it was also two years before uh, Seven Samurai which is a just bona fide masterpiece and it's just it's it's incredible, incredible to me, just the output that he had. Yeah, that's um, a pretty great run. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so what about Ikaru, if anything, like, well, like, well, uh, in terms of the story and everything, um, did anything resonate with you? Did it hit you in any specific ways? Or how did you feel about the kind of story in, in particular? Um, the story just played out just very naturally. Um, I didn't think about this until after the fact, but it was like, I feel like any Hollywood movie would take this story and just play up the schmaltz and just make it all about spectacle Mm -hmm. and just forget about this guy and focus on like, like fixing his relationship with his family. Yes. Or, just finding love or something. Mm-hmm. Um, just any kind of just surface level schmaltz. And I'm really glad that it didn't go in that direction. He basically just, at least in that first section, he just goes out and gets drunk. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, the, the dialogue was great. Um, yeah. Uh, um, Takashi Shimura, uh, Shimura, um, the way I, I don't know, I don't know how much of this is an affectation. Well, I know it's not like an, it's an affectation because I've seen him in other movies, but the way Watanabe speaks and it's like, it's this horse, like, like he's barely audible. Right. Um, I just, I, I love that choice cause it just, it just really, um, evokes 
the pain that he's in. Like, yeah, he's yeah. like, it's a very surprisingly kind of physical performance. Yeah. He's like, anytime he's walking, he's just really slouched over and mm. just moving very slowly. Um, there's a scene where he requests a song from the piano player. Oh, that scene is and so great. He, he starts singing along and it, like he, you can barely tell that he's moving his lips. Mm -hmm. Like at first I, I couldn't tell if he was singing or if someone else was, I, or just too. how it was working. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he, he sings just so well without even really moving his mouth. Yeah. So, and that scene is just, it's heartbreaking and it's yeah. beautiful and it's just, it is, it is incredible. Um, there's also some techniques that Kurosawa uses in terms of like camera placement and everything like it. I've talked about this before. Like the way that he fills a frame is just, is a master stroke every, every frame. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of scenes that really stood out to me. Um, one is in the, I don't know. I don't think it was that piano bar. It might've been that piano bar, but it's like a, um, a scene in like a bar or club that he's in and it's it's like the camera is facing up at a mirror that's above them and it's just the way that it it plays with that perspective and yeah. then switches to like ground level and everything is just it's it just looked very pretty <laughs> yeah i i noted I that it. too the the camera was really impressive in this and mm -hmm. yeah that i i think i did note that one that nice. shot uh it kind of starts out as a close up on the piano and then it kind of glides back yes. to him, I think, and then it moves, uh, maybe not in in the same moment, but later in that scene, uh, it does kind of go back and just angle up towards mm -hmm. the towards the ceiling. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with that. That and there's, I noticed there was a couple conversations that occur that are very close up, and they. They happen with, with the two, uh, Watanabe and whoever else he's talking mm -hmm. to, like the guy in the hospital who's telling him about what to expect. Yeah. That, and I think the, the female coworker, there's mm -hmm. a moment there. And just the way that he fills the frame with almost exclusively just their two faces. Yeah. It was really impressive and just a really great way to block that and just to, to fill the frame and make it interesting. Mm -hmm. Just this conversation that they're having. Yeah. When he is, when we see him kind of overseeing, um, construct or can the, the site that he is working on, essentially I'll be vague for spoiler sake, but when we see that we get kind of a signature Kurosawa rainfall scene. Um, that's yeah. a big, big, um, trademark of his, I think I said it last time that it's, um, John Ford made a remark to him about it. And anyway, yeah. Um, listen to part six for that. But, um, like the second that that happened, because this movie doesn't really have that, that Kurosawa flourish in terms of visuals like that, except for a couple of like what we've described and, uh, the set design and everything and the kind of meticulousness of that. But in terms of his regular trademarks and everything, like the rainfall and, and the weather effects, um, we don't get a lot of that, and, except for that one scene. And kind of on the surface, you can kind of, I could see like viewing that as being like, okay, well, there's the Kurosawa rainfall scene, there's the Kurosawa weather scene. Like yeah. we just need to check that box. But 
I mean, just as soon as I saw like the rain falling and everything and Watanabe walking without the umbrella, um, as someone rushes up to him with the umbrella, uh, just all I thought was, man, no one can capture rain on film, (laughs) like water in a rainfall on film, like Kurosawa could like, it's just, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, how did you feel about his uh, Watanabe's relationship with his son and also the way that the movie kind of it it breaks from well I wouldn't say it breaks from its convention to do this but briefly it does break apart a little bit or uh, in terms of employing flashbacks and flashing back and forth to kind of show and 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 tell the story of Watanabe as a father how did you feel like did that did that particular section did that hit with you or did you have any problems with it or how'd you feel about it um i appreciated it yeah um he's his son is kind of introduced as a real asshole yeah, <laughs> um, yeah talk about an opening scene yeah <laughs> like, really jeez um so i i appreciated the way that it unfolded uh, and the way that it kind of developed, um, I'm kind of blanking on the specifics of these flashbacks. Um, but with the, with the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a, the baseball game and, uh, oh, the, the, his mother's funeral, um, yeah, like like the kind of one that stood out to me was the baseball game where he's he 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 feels like he seems almost uncomfortable uh Watanabe does with like with giving giving him um support yeah. um and everything like he he kind of has this prideful kind of like that's my son thing to the to the guy next to him and then like he has like an error or something and then uh the guy next to him was like, what a fucking idiot. <laughs> and it's just like this weird, like I it's, it kind of showcases how, um, I guess out of touch with parenting he was or how okay. ineffectual of a, of a parent he was, um, to him. But yeah, I don't, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm kind of blanking on that oh, yeah. scene. So <laughs> full disclosure, uh, we were originally supposed to record last night. Yeah. And in the meantime, I was forced. I told you this would happen. Yes. I was oh God. forced to watch Grown Ups too last night, <laughs> and so now I'm uh, sorry. That's that's all of Kurosawa has been blanked from my God. mind, and now all I can think about is Adam Sandler and Deer P. Yeah, um, I was just gonna say. Like, oh. <laughs> so what did you think of the scene where Watanabe has the deer <laughs> run into the house and pee all over his son, <sighs> um, or whatever happens and. Grownups too. Oh. Yeah. I, yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of, and then we can kind of go into spoilers to talk about that third act. Um, how'd you feel about that? The kind of relationship or the mentor mentee ship, um, companionship that arises between, uh, Watanabe and, uh, the young woman. I enjoyed that one. Yeah. I, I liked all of their scenes together. Um, and uh, she's, I like the way that her character is introduced. Um, yeah. And, uh, just their, their chemistry together is great. Uh, 
Remind me again, does he convince her to stay on board at the job? Or? No. Okay. No, no. She tenders her resignation. Okay. Yeah. Or does she, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to she ends come up, up with some kind of plot development from yeah. grown-ups. Yo, I gotcha. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, no, I, I liked their scenes together. Uh, yes. They were fun. There's a there's a certain like passage of time that happens, um, in regards to to his kind of it's not it's not a romantic relationship by any means, but it's yeah. it's kind of this overbearing kind of thing that it becomes. She becomes his, uh, kind of um, life raft in a in a way. Yeah, like he basically the movie is him trying to find meaning at the end of his life and try to find something to leave behind and everything because he does, he has a fractured relationship with his son, which that was particularly just really heartbreaking to see. Like there's that scene where, um, they're, they're, I think they're having dinner and it's when Watanabe is about to tell him like, Oh, Hey, uh, I've got cancer. Yeah. But the way that it plays out is so, it's so strongly written in terms of just this fractured family dynamic because uh, his son and, and his, his son's wife or girlfriend, whichever um, don't like, they assume one thing. They don't give him an opportunity to say his, his one thing. Cause they just assume the other thing. And it's this, it's, it almost sounds like a comedy of errors kind of thing, Yeah, but it's more just like this just, Un unmendable fracture of communication within this family. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to see. It is absolutely heartbreaking to see. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, the, yeah, sorry, backtracking the, uh, scenes between him and the, uh, the coworker. Okay. Um, that's another thing that I feel like any other Hollywood movie would do mm. is try to make them into a romantic couple. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm real glad that it didn't go that route. I it and I haven't seen this in a long time, but it kind of makes me wonder if that particularly influenced uh, Sofia Coppola with uh, Lost in Translation. Okay. Um, because I can kind of see some parallels there, but I don't know. Okay. That's one I haven't seen, unfortunately. Well, damn. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. Do we have any other thoughts, or should we go into spoilers for that third act? I don't think so. Okay. So, before we do that, um, how does this compare to Yojimbo? Which one did you like more, and what um, are you looking toward for your next Kurosawa movie? Uh can you compare these to compare this to you Jimbo? Really can't. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I think what it comes down to is the rewatchability. Mm -hmm. And when I first finished this, I probably would have said no. Uh, okay. I I don't want to rewatch this. But given this conversation and realizing what I uh, missed out on, or <laughs> skipped over i guess i don't know um what I, adam sandler took away from you yes <laughs> uh i would not mind re-watching this so um 
thumbs up. Um, I'm still excited to watch Rashomon. I don't know why. Nice. Um, nice. And that, I mean, obviously, Sam and Samurai too, but mm. um, Rashomon I know is shorter, so right. that's got it going in its favor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nice, nice. So, would you put it on your great movies list? I think so. Okay. Nice. Uh, again, when I first finished it, I probably would have been more inclined to say no, mm-hmm. but I think so. And especially reading uh, Ebert's essay just made me appreciate, especially the ending even more. So nice. Yeah. I, I think I'll say yes. I am shitty and I didn't read the essay for <laughs> this movie or, or uh, Cleo. Um, so I can't really attest to that, but obviously thumbs up for me. Definitely mm-hmm. on my great movies list. Um. Yeah. Should we spoil Ikiru? Sure. All right. Well, we are going to go into spoilers for Ikiru. If you want to jump ahead to Cleo from five to seven, check the show notes for timestamps to avoid the spoiler section. All right. So, uh, here's the bumper for the spoiler the section. Dialogue created an atmosphere that really involved me. I was surprised how caught up I got in this movie and in the behavior of the characters. This is a very good movie that is sometimes hard to watch because of the level of violence and depravity that is unusual even among crime films. Words right. They have the words exactly right. You know what I like too was the stylistic freedom they gave themselves. All right, and we are spoilers on for Ikiru. So Ben, you mentioned that the last forty-five minutes or so didn't really um, mesh well with you. Um, is it just from the moment that he dies? <laughs> and yes, it's all kind of the the wake that occurs after that, essentially. So I liked the, at the moment of the wake, I liked when the business guys were like talking shit about him. And then I, I liked the, uh, mourners, the, the townspeople, the Mm -hmm. women coming in and just mourning the shit out of them. And then they just sit in awkward silence. I really appreciated that. And the Mm -hmm. way that, the uh the opening of the movie uh paid that off yeah um yes yes so not to mention the 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 opening of the movie is pretty funny <laughs> yeah uh, you gotta admit yeah um even Giving them the run around and pushing them off to different yes, departments yeah because i mean i've never worked at a government agency mm-hmm. but i feel like that's pretty accurate in that, and I've especially yeah. never worked for one in 1950s Tokyo, right? And that's something that I, I kind of found really interesting is that, like, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm maybe I have a little bit of um, uh, residual like awkwardness or residual um, insecurities about like being like a teenager who just loved Kurosawa movies. Mm-hmm. Um, because I say it's because I was a snob or whatever, but they're incredible fucking movies. But one of the things that I really, I really love and latched onto in this viewing of this movie in particular was how one of the reasons why I'm, I'm kind of attracted to more foreign movies like that. And, and I'm more interested in seeing like movies that are not made in America or made from like the perspective of people in America um, is because like, it finds those deeper meanings or it makes those deeper meanings and the themes and everything um, 
kind of come out in interesting ways. Like watching this movie, I was like, that, like it's, I mean, it's, it's a bureaucracy. It's, it's a democrat, it's a democratic society, a bureaucratic nightmare and everything. Like it's <laughs> the same in any democracy. Like this is, this is a staple of democracy and everything. Yeah. Um, so even the, even though the culture is wildly different and time, the time is wildly different. Like, yeah, that's exactly how it still goes on and will still go on. Right. Forever. Um, so I love that about it. I thought it was demonstrated really well. Okay. Yep. So what kind of annoyed me in those last 45 minutes is the time between that moment and the end when the playground is built and he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's there. Um, I feel like it could have been condensed a little bit more and maybe it's just, Again, because I was very tired and very sleepy at the times, yeah. um, but uh, uh, I, it just moved very slowly. It felt like I could, I could definitely see that, and I was, I was pretty surprised that we had that much, that much time left in the yeah, movie right, <laughs> at yeah. that point. Um, because it seems like it should, like that, that seems like it should be like the denouement of the movie. Like that should be the resolution of everything. Um, is them kind of reflecting on his life and like his his coworkers and everyone coming to the realization that like oh this is actually real like this is the this he really did all this, these things yeah and everything but it does run a little long but i think i i don't mind i didn't mind it hardly at all really because i feel like it really paints um it paints a distinctive picture for the movie as a whole like it it really kind of brings together those themes of the movie of like this man, like the story is it's the story of a man who is faced with his mortality and realizes that he has not done anything to leave a lasting impression or a legacy or anything. Yeah. And to be honest, like that's something that I think about a lot as yep. a fucking 34 year old man in Indianapolis. But also like, I, it's just, it just kind of really, hit home with me and that's one of the reasons why i fucking podcast so much um but um but yeah it it just it really resonated with me in a in a pretty profound way because this is it's not this it's not immediately this triumphant thing it's not even really at the end a very triumphant thing because in the moment we get that triumph of like them realizing like oh my god he did all these things he and he knew that he had cancer and like he knew that he that he didn't have a lot of time left and, and he still did all of these things. Um, and we're going to never, we're never going to forget this. <laughs> and then the next day it's like, Oh, nope. We're back to the same old, same old, which I, I really respect that yeah. um, a lot. Cause it's, it's very authentic. Um, so I don't know. I just, I really, really loved this, uh, this ending sequence, uh, this, this third act, but something that I forgot to mention um, in the non-spoiler section, another scene that I thought was really just, it was poignant and beautiful in a very, in, in a more direct way than I, than I would expect from a Kurosawa movie. Like it's not very subtle, uh, this particular part, but when he comes to the realization that like, oh, he can still, he can still do things. He can still, he can still make an impression or he can still leave something behind, um, when he comes to that realization, he runs off to go to, to go to the office, um, or to, to kind of refocus his life's ambition. Um, he's in like a restaurant or a building and like they start, a crowd starts singing happy birthday. And like, I thought that that was, 
on on paper it shouldn't work as well as it did mm-hmm. but it just i think i think it works for me because of the way the camera kind of plays a trick on us because we see him coming toward like toward the camera down the stairs and there's a crowd of people that are like rushing up behind him on the landing of the stairs singing happy birthday like very celebratory and everything and in that moment it's kind of like oh there's like it's this not so subtle thing of of you know you know happy birthday like he's finally alive like this is his yeah. birth and everything yep but then a woman comes up the stairs and they're singing to her and it <laughs> has nothing to do with him and it's just this interesting I, I don't know how to articulate exactly what it is, but there's something about it that I just I found it maybe it's supposed to be humorous, uh, and that's all, but I just I found humor humor and uh kind of a profoundness in that. I, I just I, I love that a lot. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um what'd you think of the kind of final sequence in the in the, the actual uh him on the swing, um singing with the snow and everything? Beautiful. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, it's, uh, I think Ebert says this in his review. It's like one of the most beautiful, most poignant shots of any movie, maybe ever. Uh, and uh, it's hard to disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it kind of sums up almost the entire movie in one mm-hmm. shot or one sequence. Yeah. yeah. And with him singing, it's just, it's, yep, it's great. Um, just really want to just make this stupid joke. Um, I, I don't know, but to be fair, and I, I do agree with, I do agree with that sentiment that it is one of the most profound and, and poignant, um, scenes, um, in film history, but also you've got to take into account that I believe Ebert passed away before Grown Ups too, so he did not get to yeah. see the deer peeing in the in the house scene. Yeah, um, so, he yeah. missed out on that. He, yeah, he might have had a different perspective. Yep, I agree. Um, okay, so <laughs> uh, okay, I think are we done talking about Ikiru? Sure. Okay. All right. Well, um, let us know what you thought of Ikiru, and uh, yeah, let's go into our review of Cleo from Five to Seven from 1962. Um, this movie goes through some pretty predictable paces about their forbidden love, but I was never really very interested in the characters in Blade Runner. I didn't find it convincing. Instead, what impressed me in this film were the special effects, the wonderful use of optical trickery to show me a gigantic imaginary Los Angeles, which in the vision of this movie has been turned into sort of a futuristic a Tokyo. Great performance, and Fargo is the best movie the Farm Brothers have ever made. A quirky... Ben, do you want to read the plot summary, or should I? Yeah, I can. Okay, cool. All right, Cleo from 5 to 7 from 1962, directed by Agnes Varda. Cleo, a singer and a hypochondriac, becomes increasingly worried that she might have cancer while awaiting test results from her doctor. So... Matt, this was your first Agnes Varda, right? That is true. Okay. Yes. How much, what did you know about her going into this? Uh, what did you, what What kind of, what's your background with like the French New Wave and this um, era of French films? extraordinarily limited like next to no experience matt by the way is wearing a beret and i I am drinking wine and carrying a baguette yes i have like a little (laughs) dog i don't 
do they have little dogs? I don't know. Sure. Um, Everyone does. Yeah. So, um, she has a cat. Yes, she I has did, several cats. I did note it. Like this movie, <laughs> I I gotta say, some very very good cat work in this movie. <laughs> um, but I had next to no knowledge of Agnes Varda. Um, I knew that you got the. Um, I knew that you own the um, Criterion set. With all of her movies? All of them. All of them. Okay. Shorts and features. Nice. Okay. Um, and that's all I really knew. Um, I don't know much about the French New Wave um, or what it's kind of all about. Have Have we covered any French New Wave movies? Um, you could, I guess, say that Les Samurai was right. one of them. I forget now what year that came out. 65, maybe? Maybe. 61. I, who would, who knows if there's like a, a device on our, in our hands <laughs> right. that could tell us this instantly. Yeah. 1967. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that it still classifies, I guess, as a French new wave film, okay. but it's not as early as this one, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't have any real experience with it. And um, my kind of overall thoughts, what I thought was really interesting, first of all, and we can talk more about this, is how it's in black and white, but that opening scene is in color with the tarot card reading. Um, yes. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and my kind of, bro in broad terms, I was really, I, I was impressed with the movie. I didn't really like it as much as I was hoping to to be honest. Um, but I think I got more excitement over the fact that it parallels, um, or, or, it, um, I'm, I'm just, I was really excited that these were the two picks. Like it yeah. does parallel the, each, the movies parallel each other incredibly closely. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I kind of, I felt like it took a little bit of, of a while to kind of get moving. Like, and that's, I was excited that it was a 90 minute movie. <laughs> yep. And You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it is, I, it does well in terms of, of going on this character's journey. I mean, it is, it, it's it's very similar to Ikiru. Um, <laughs> she's wandering the city, <laughs> yeah. Uh, pending test results and stuff. Once she's actually out in the city and she's wandering and she's walking around, she has all of those uh, um, encounters and everything. That's kind of when the movie kind of ramped up for me. But the whole point where she's at home and she has the people come visit her and they sing and every like that that kind of lost me a little bit. Um, and then the movie kind of ramped up when it when she was going th around the city, um, and then it wasn't until the park scene at the <laughs> the park scene at the end of the movie <laughs> that it kind of clicked with me a little bit more, and I and I got more enjoyment. Out of it. Here's something else that's going to blow your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, so on the Criterion box set, there's uh, several special features. Uh, this is just the first of many plugs that I'll make for the box set. Nice. But uh, I was watching it yesterday, and there's an interview that Agnes Varda does about, like, the making of it. Mm. And she talks about that park scene, and she says that since it's in black and white, they used a green filter for the camera lens, which oh. makes the 
the green grass appear brighter and she wanted it to almost look like snow, like <laughs> an almost surreal kind of snowy wow. effect. Jeez. So, <laughs> yeah. That, wow. Okay. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and and we can. I I don't I don't know. Well, we'll probably talk more about that. Her scenes with with the man at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. um, a little bit later. But overall, I kind of I was kind of I was into it, but not as into it as I was ho- hoping to. Um, okay, hoping to be. How how did you feel about Cleo from five to seven? And also, uh, what made you pick it? So, I watched this for the first time last year. Uh, probably around the same time of the year, maybe earlier. And I really enjoyed it. Um, and it was the only Agnes Varda movie that I had ever seen. So, um, just, I, I bought the box set based off of that alone. And just knowing that the rest of her work was pretty well acclaimed. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I forget how many movies I'm into the box set at this point. I'm going in chron- chronological order, but I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, nice. But I I loved the movie the first time I saw it. Uh, I didn't know anybody else that had seen it, so I just wanted an excuse to talk about it. Really, mm-hmm. um, I yeah, uh, it's. It is a visual movie. There are some really nice shots, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say it's like like an eight and a half level of right. like artistry behind all of the shots. You know, mm-hmm. it is very well made and very well put together, and it looks great. Yeah. Um, but it just doesn't have those kind of flourishes, like you know, like eight and a half, like which. Which I would say at this point may be the best looking film that we've covered so far. Yeah, I would I would one hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I I really dug the story. I liked Cleo as a character, and just every rewatch that I've had of this has just made me appreciate it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it it's kind of an all timer for me. Nice. That's awesome, and and I I definitely appreciate it. Um, even if it didn't really hit with me as as hard as as uh, I would have liked to, mm-hmm. it's something I might revisit at some point. I'm sure I will at some point, um, and kind of probably have a new appreciation of it. But, um, something that I do think was done very well with this movie is the way that it 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 transitions from Cleo's kind of kind of despair and melancholy over over her you know illness and and yeah. impending uh results and everything and really once she meets the man in the park like that is lifted so vividly and clearly and it transitions into a completely different tone and like it becomes like this very charming um very charming movie in the last 20 or so minutes or 15 minutes. And I kind of wanted more of that. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I got out of it was, was pretty, pretty, pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what I like a lot about this is that the story is, uh, 
I wouldn't say bad. I wouldn't even say okay. I I think it's it's a great story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just maybe not the main draw here, I guess. Yeah. Um, but what I was impressed with is just the way. So Agnes Varda also did a bunch of documentaries, um, and the way that she films this is almost kind of documentary like in a lot yeah. of moments. Um, like, uh, it's, hang on. I, I brought, this is the, uh, the book that comes with the box set. Nice. It's really cool. Um, there's a a line that I'm going to read for it and about this. Okay. Uh, like so many of Varda's films, it is always two things at once, a vibrant on the street study of Paris in the early sixties, mainly the narrow streets, shops, and gardens of the Left Bank's 14th arrondissement, and an interior portrait of a woman's fears and contradictions. So I I really enjoyed that kind of documentary, kind of uh, look at just this snapshot of Paris at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some moments that I feel like couldn't have been planned out ahead of time that worked really well yeah yeah there's a scene where she's overhearing um a man and woman kind of having a i don't even want to say it's a fight it's they're just kind of bickering about like sleeping over yeah (laughs) Uh and i just i found that pretty compelling in terms of her being kind of a fly on the wall and like kind of witnessing or or being more cognizant of other people living um, when she is facing her own kind of mortality and her, her, the, the doom that she feels of her, uh, possible impending death, essentially. Yeah. Um, I thought that was, that was really well done and it, it's stuff that's sprinkled throughout the whole movie, um, throughout it. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I forget if it was Ebert or this criterion book that said it, but, um, they talk about how kind of the first half of the movie is all about how everybody sees Cleo and how she sees herself. Yeah. And then the second half is really how she sees everyone else around her. And I, I really enjoyed the way that it, it doesn't even really underline that theme. It's just a very natural way of, uh, developing, her as a character and just this thesis statement for the movie. Absolutely. And to that point, like there are moments in the movie where uh, a couple of distinct sequences, I think where she is like walking and, and it's like, she's walking through a crowd or she's walking through, walking down the street, down the sidewalk and everything. And like, the camera just like shows like it's, it's rapid fire showing us just images of people just staring at her yeah. and everything. And I thought that was yeah, really, yeah. really uh, striking. Yeah. It's, it's a real like in your face kind of uh, a way of, of depicting that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want to get into spoilers really. Cause you know, I don't know if there's really a way to spoil this, but uh, there's one line that really stood out to me and kind of I found really profound and and kind of beautiful in in the way it was um, written and shot. But kind of at the end of the movie when they're on the bench and they're talking, she and the man, they're talking and uh, she says something like like you need to give me your address or else we'll we'll forget. And mm-hmm. 
they are swapping info and uh she says we have so little time and that this is like a this is a this is a close up shot of the two of them on the bench and she says we have so little time and then the camera either cuts or pulls back to a wide shot and then she says we have all like we have so much time or we have all we have all this time or whatever and just like um <laughs> very memorable line um <laughs> yeah we have all the time whatever um but uh it's just i feel like that's a really beautiful sentiment to kind of leave the movie on um although it doesn't leave the movie on that sen- like i wish one of my big issues with the movie is like i wish it had ended 5 minutes early and okay. cuz there's a, there's a scene where like an I won't give it away, but like a character comes up and gives her information and then they walk and yeah. that's the end of the movie. And I'm like, it would have been, it would have been much more to my liking and my sensibilities to leave that open-ended and leave that on, leave the, leave the movie on them rather than on her knowledge of the new information she just got. Okay. Yeah. How'd you feel about the ending? Well, this will blow your mind, actually, that, that uh, this is another thing that Agnes Varda talks about in that making of documentary interview, whatever. So the very last shot where they're walking towards the camera, mm-hmm. the camera is on a dolly, right? Okay. And if you look in the background as they get far enough back, you can see the dolly tracks in the shot. Oh, really? <laughs> which I, I hadn't even noticed until Jeez. I saw that part. Okay. Um, but she said that she went, she noticed it when she was editing the film and they went back and tried to reshoot it. Mm-hmm. And the chemistry just wasn't there between the oh, two. Oh, interesting. So she left it in, in, in uh, on purpose, knowing that those dollies are there. Wow. Um, <laughs> hmm. So... Maybe in another world there would have been uh, <laughs> it, it could have ended earlier, but wow, yeah, okay, that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, how how did how did the ending sit with you and everything? Um, yeah, I, I no complaints for me. Nice. Uh, I I can understand why you would want it to end where it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's not insane or anything, but. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with ending it where it did kind okay. of that uncertain uncertainty, hmm. uh, between the, the two of them, whether they actually will ever see each other again or just what the future will hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen these movies, but it kind of, I, that, that scene, the, the sequence with her and the man, that, that segment of the movie feels to me like it. It feels like what I think the before trilogy is supposed to be <laughs> or is because I haven't seen them. It's uh, great that you mentioned that. Okay. Because I was uh, since watching like in between watching this for the first time and the second time I watched the before trilogy mm-hmm. and I was going to text you and tell you, <laughs> hey, if you have time, watch the before trilogy after nice. watching this because – there is literally a scene in Before Sunrise where Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy get on a rail car uh, and have a conversation with each other. Uh, so <laughs> okay, that was that was just one of like yeah that that whole 
ending scene between the two of them, I felt like had the before trilogy written all over it. Wow. Um, so I'm I'm glad that you picked up on that. Yeah, yeah definitely um, watch the before trilogy. Either way, yeah, I, I it's high on my list. Um, I I'm hoping that I'll be able to watch it sooner rather than link later. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I have I have them on Blu-ray, so I'll I'll watch them soon. Yeah. Um, the other movie that this reminded me of, and I don't know if this is a stretch, maybe not, but. Um, once upon a time in Hollywood, just with all the scenes of Brad Pitt driving around, oh, okay. around Hollywood nice. and the, the driving scenes in this, I could, I could definitely see that. I could yeah. definitely see that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also when she throws the cat food at the, at the, at the bad guy and yeah. it just smashes her yeah, face the, and then the, the flamethrowers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The flamethrower. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but yeah, I could definitely, I could definitely see that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm uh, sure there are many more influences that oh, yeah. that uh, are owed to this movie, but mm-hmm. those were the two that stood out to me. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I am definitely going to have to watch the Before Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I highly recommend watching uh, you watching Itumama Tambien. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. One of the things that one of the other things that I appreciated. Um, and I don't know if you had picked up on this, but nearly every male character that you meet or even hear about is either like an idiot or an asshole or just yeah. not a very pleasant person, with the exception of the guy at the end. Right. That di- It didn't really consciously register with me, um, mm-hmm. but now that you mentioned that, like it's definitely like flying up uh uh it's it's making me recontextualize it yeah um the scene like okay the scene in at her home first her lover comes and she's kind of uh, she's distant toward him and he leaves he's distant toward her i don't know what the what the kind of i don't remember or know what the like kind of implication of that was but then the two men come in and they start singing and everything were they working on were they working on a new new music for her? Yes. Okay. Um also another <laughs> another interesting parallel. Uh this the and piano. Ichiru have yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. musical numbers with pianos. Very that um, end very sadly. Yeah, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just wow. I Where did the main character sings. Right? <laughs> Just god, that's so that's so awesome. I wonder if uh Agnes Varda and Kurosawa were best friends. That's that's a good question. <laughs> um but I did notice like like now like I do notice that in terms of the depictions of men and everything. How do you feel about that that extended sequence in 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 the house with uh the men singing and and working with her and everything? Um It's not perfect. I'll I'll give it that. Uh I I really like the set design of it. Um just wish there was a deer running in there peeing all over everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, she really missed, missed the mark there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it just kind of helps to color Cleo's world, uh, mm-hmm. and just like what she has to put up with. And it gives you extra perspective on just who she is and what other people think of her. So it kind of yeah. fits more into that thesis of how other people see her, you know. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And and I I'm I'm on board with that. Um the way that they are kind of buffoonish and or cartoonish, especially the the one guy uh, the second guy that comes up, um he just the one see- with or without the glasses. With the glasses. Okay. Yeah. Um, it just like, that seemed like it veered off way too much into this kind of weird farcical kind of thing. Yeah. Um, like with them, like with the big syringe thing and all that, that felt like a little out of place to me. Um, but, or maybe it's part of French new wave. (laughs) I'm just not aware of. Um, but the actual, when, when the movie shifts and she's singing and it shifts to the, like her alone, singing with like tears in her eyes and tears streaming down her face like that I thought was was it might with the exclusion of kind of the whole sequence at the end with the with the man in the park um that singing scene was probably the the best scene of the movie for me yeah 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 I I would agree (laughs) some sorry uh something that struck me about it as, as well was, and I think it may, maybe because of those scenes where people are staring at her and we're getting the close up and everything, but that kind of really made this, it, it made that encounter with the man at the park. It made it feel like there was at least briefly a sense of just impending doom. <laughs> <laughs> like I thought for sure that like something horrible was going to happen and it just felt very, um, kind of cathartic when it turns out like oh there it's a it's a meat cute thing yeah um yeah how do you feel about that the tone of it um that is an interesting thought i i didn't really think of like if it would have had like a dark ending mm-hmm. or something uh and i think that that kind of just shows my ignorance of <laughs> french new wave cuz i like i don't know like I don't know anything about it, so I'm like, well, is this going to be like a fucking um, snuff film? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I am definitely no expert on French New Wave, mm. but um, I don't know. Uh, another thing that I appreciated about the movie, uh, and another mirror to Ikaru, mm-hmm. I'm real glad that the that Cleo and the man don't end up romantically involved by the end right. of the movie. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they mm-hmm. don't, but it's not clear. So I appreciate yeah. that. And that, I kind of think, because there, there's clearly like a romantic connection between them. There, yeah. There's a romantic chemistry and it's implied that they'll, they'll have like a romantic thing, possibly, I don't know. But um, that was something that kind of... Because I watched Ikiru first. Yeah. And going from Ikiru and watching Cleo, it kind of felt like the by the ending, as much as I like that kind of meet-cute, that chemistry-laden encounter with, with him and her, it kind of felt like the movie was saying, and maybe not saying directly, but like it kind of felt like while Ikiru's kind of main thesis was like, oh, this man is going through his life knowing that it's finite and he is determined to make something of his life. Whereas with Cleo from five to seven, it kind of feels like this woman is potentially at the end of her life and she doesn't know what she's searching for or what meaning she's going to have in it. But, Oh, there's a man here and, (laughs) and you know, he's going to make it all better. Exactly. Right. She's, she's a, she's a, uh, 
she's she's just a high strung businesswoman um who doesn't have time for a relationship <laughs> and this man is going to just going to take all of her problems away um not it, yeah that not it's not like that but like it kind of seems like i don't know I, while i appreciate the extreme change in her kind of behavior like cuz the film and her performance, like, livens up. Like, that is the one time in this movie that she has any semblance of, like, livelihood in her in her performance. Like, she is very lively and very engaged with him. Mm-hmm. And it kind of feels like, that's great. I, I love that tone and how it re- rises to that chemistry that's that's between them. But it also kind of makes... And maybe it's because I watched it in the shadow of Ikiru, but it kind of feels like I don't... I, it's fine. Like I kind of wish that there was something more to get her out of that doom and gloom that she went through throughout the rest of the movie. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Yep. Yeah. Um, such a feminist. I know. I know. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and, and, and I don't want it to be like this soapbox thing where it's like, no man, they're doing that and all that. Like, cause obviously it's not that way. It just, it kind of just felt like it was a little, it was less profound than the other movie I saw about a, about a character with cancer. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. Um, anything else? Um, probably, but uh... the cats. So yeah. we see one cat at the tarot card reading, and then. When she's at home, we see like two or three, I think. Yeah. And not only are they cats, but those fucking things are kittens. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And that's another thing <laughs> about women in film. Like, there do not need to be crazy cat. La- I'm kidding. That's not a, a soapbox I'm going to get on. Um, but so, I adore it. They're good kitties. Matt, does this go on your great cat movies list? <laughs> <laughs> uh yes yes um i i think so i think i'll put it just below cats and dogs uh-huh um and cats and cat well only the butthole edition of cats <laughs> yes of course um, yeah i am i'm a i'm i'm very much a stickler for authenticity yeah there we go um yeah so i i think i would do, do you want to do ratings and and great movies sure Okay. Um yeah, I give it a thumbs up. It was it was definitely a good movie. I I don't I don't think I'd put it on my great movies list, to be okay. honest. Yeah. And to replace it, uh let's watch the before trilogy and then you can Yes uh, you can make a ruling. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think I would preemptively say that uh, almost for sure, uh, the before trilogy in its entirety would be on it. Uh, but I was going to see, cause I don't know. I think is E2 Mama Tambien on. No, it's not. No, really? Oh man. Okay. So tentatively I would put the before trilogy, but since I have not seen that and <laughs> cannot make that, that statement, my replacement for Cleo from five to seven is Itumama Tembien, which okay. is a just beautiful, incredible movie. So, yeah. Okay. Um, how about you? 
Yes. Uh, thumbs up would go on the list. Nice. Yes. Nice. And I would say if any of the listeners out there liked this, then definitely check out the Criterion box set. Nice. It is well worth your money. I really wish that I had the time or that Criterion allowed us this time <laughs> because right now um, there's a 24-hour 50% off flash sale on Criterion.com. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yep. And Oh, you shouldn't have told me that. I know. <laughs> I know. I Because I've been, I've been kind of kind of looking at it a little bit i'm like eh, i can't i i can't justify anything but then i'm like that fast times at richmond high <laughs> movie just uh, like edition just came out uh or is coming out i don't know um so if it's coming out then i don't i don't think so um it wouldn't be available but anyway um yeah so it that ends at noon eastern time tomorrow so okay I, I will say I'm kind of surprised that this is the only Agnes Varda movie on this list. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't even think to ask. Huh. Yeah. Because uh, in his essay, I mean, he wrote a couple essays just about Agnes Varda. Oh, wow. Uh, but he mentions it in this movie just how nice and lovely he thought that she was nice. and how much he enjoyed her company and her films. So, wow. um I, I'm excited to get into her later work because she she never really stopped working. I mean, wow. her last movie was in I think 2018. Oh wow! Okay, um, she did that. It was nominated huh. for best documentary uh, called Faces Places. Oh okay. So and I never saw yeah. that one. Um, so I'm excited to check out her documentaries because nice. I haven't made it that far yet. Okay, so judging from um, the place that you're at now in her filmography, since this was the first Agnes Varda movie that I've ever seen, what would you recommend for me to to watch next? Um, Not guaranteeing I'll be able to. But um, <laughs> so, well, I mean, you can borrow it if you want. Okay, um, nice. So so far. I have only seen three features of hers. Okay. Uh, this one and two others. The, this is her second feature that she directed. Gotcha. Um, in between that, there's been like probably four or five shorts. Okay. Um, but they're all the, – the most recent one that I watched is called Les Bonheur. Uh, I don't know the pronunciation and I don't know the English translation ah. <laughs> for it. But uh, it's it's a very good – very colorful uh, movie. Yeah, Le Bonheur. Okay. L-E-B-O-N-H-E-U-R. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah. Also a 79-minute movie. Oh, nice. So, okay. Yes. <laughs> cool. Um, all right. Well, I think that'll do it for this edition of the Ebert's Great Movies List uh, review series. It's part seven. Um, now we are going to give our... Um, selections for part eight, and we are going to make a big announcement about part eight. That I would say it's a tiny announcement. I was just going <laughs> to say that. Um, yeah, so for part eight, we are going to be reviewing not two movies, but three movies, with the third one being selected by the obsessive viewers, the obsessive viewer, the obsessive viewers own tiny. Um, who will be joining us for those reviews. 
So this is very exciting. This is unprecedented in this Plot review series. Twist. Yes. So I have Tiny Selection. I will save that for after we both give ours. But uh, Ben, do you want to give your... Should we give his first in case in the oh. very off chance that it's something that one of us could pick? If I, I will say this. He did give me two choices. Okay. So on the off chance that we both select... <laughs> no, no, no. Because I know definitely I didn't select it. So we'll we'll be good. Um, okay. Yeah. So Ben, what is what is your next uh, selection? So we are gonna go from Kurosawa to his hero John Ford. Ooh. And there's a couple of his on this list, I think. Uh, but one that I have some thoughts on. Okay. It is from 1956, The Searchers with John Nice. Wayne. Okay. Okay. Nice. I'm I'm very excited about that. Um because I I know that you have very strong opinions about that. And you can say that. yeah, and I uh it's it's obviously a blind spot for me, so I am very excited for that. Nice. Okay. So uh The Searchers is Ben's uh, pick. Streaming on HBO Max. Nice. Yes. Nice. Okay. And then my pick um which I don't know why I'm bringing it up on my phone because I know what it is, but um, um, it is available to stream, I believe, on Criterion and HBO Max and uh, the usual places. But it is <laughs> 1928's The Circus um, ah. by uh, by Charlie Chaplin. Excellent. Um, one of the main reasons... <laughs> It's because we're <laughs> reviewing three movies. <laughs> this next one in the circus is like 74 minutes long. Okay. And also, but that, that's the kind of jokey reason why. Um, but really, um, yeah, it's 72 minutes long. But really, the reason why, the specific reason why I picked uh, the circus is because I, as I was watching Cleo from 5 to 7, I was sitting there thinking like, I mean, we 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 just reviewed two movies about cancer, <laughs> so like I need a comedy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, you know, Charlie Chaplin. I'm I'm gonna do that. Uh, so I I my pick is the circus. Awesome. Uh, from 1920. That is one of his that I have not seen. Oh, that's I've seen a nice. handful of his, but not that one. That's awesome. I, I'm I'm so glad because it's one that I haven't seen either, and like I was very tempted to be like, you know, maybe we can. We can watch one that I've seen, um, but but no, I want to um, broaden my horizons with that. And I don't own it on Blu-ray. I might use that Criterion sale as okay. a reason to buy it. Um, so, are you ready for Tiny's pick? I'm ready. All right, man. What would have been really cool is if I would have had him record him. Man, <laughs> I didn't even think of that. But anyway, um, so I gave Tiny a list, and he looked into he looked into it, and he was wondering. Or he wasn't wondering. Um, he selected two movies, <laughs> and uh, I. So okay, I'll just read some of the text and everything. Um, so I gave him poor tiny. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I feel compelled to apologize. You didn't to give him. him the whole list to choose from. I did. Okay. Um, well, most of the list I have on the notes that I have for for the episodes that we record. Um, I have like a list that I copied and pasted of like most of the movies on the list. So like there are like a few that the formatting didn't work out. So I had to delete them from the list, but like it's, it's, I gave him a list of three, um, 300 and 
Um, I think I just gave him three. Nope. Uh, 350 movies. <laughs> Um, all from the list. And the ones that we've already covered are in bold. Okay. So I just gave him four screenshots of, anyway, it was a whole thing. So he said, um, he said, do the right thing and paths of glory are two that jumped out to me. Uh, I've always meant to see them. Spike Lee was interviewed on NPR the other day and it made me remember that I've never seen what's supposed to be his mm-hmm. best movie. And I've been on a bit of a historical kick lately. So paths of glory sounds good. And it's an early Kubrick movie that I've never seen. Um, so you guys can decide between those two. <laughs> so, uh, so I sent this to him and I was really proud of this. Um, <clears throat> as much as I'd probably prefer to do the right thing and pick the Spike Lee movie, I will have to follow some paths of glory towards streaming services because the Kubrick movie is available on Amazon prime. I'm an idiot. So, <laughs> so Tiny's selection for part eight of the Ebert's Great Movies List review series on Obsessive Viewer is 1957's Paths of Glory, which is available to stream on Prime Video. So there you have it. Your homework for next time is to watch The Searchers on HBO Max, uh, The Circus on HBO Max as well, and uh, Paths of Glory on um, Amazon Prime. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. We're going to close this out this episode with a uh, potpourri section. Uh, for those of you who um, are new to the show, uh, potpourri is a section of the podcast where we kind of wind down and we talk about what we're looking for, forward to, what we're excited about, what we've seen, uh, whatever we want, as long as it smells good, kind of to break down the episode at the end. So, um, Ben, I don't have anything for potpourri, but I will once you once uh, I'm done talking. But do you want to get us kicked off with your potpourri segment for this episode of the Obsessive Viewer Podcast? Yeah, sure. Sweet. Uh, so which would you rather learn more about? The Netflix movie Malcolm and Marie or the HBO Max Warner Brothers whatever movie The Little Things? Um... You know, I I think I'll go Malcolm and Marie specifically because the little things is leaving HBO Max here in a, like a day. Um, so if for some reason if like I'm enticed to see it because I haven't watched it yet, I'll be disappointed. Um, um, I won't be able to. I think you'll be okay with missing <laughs> okay. it. Okay. All right. So Malcolm and Marie, Malcolm and Marie, uh, is on Netflix. Um, Directed by Sam Levinson, stars John David Washington and Zendaya. Is it Zendaya or Zendaya? Uh, Zendaya, I believe. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> uh, um, so, and and that's it. It's just mm. the two of them. It was shot, directed, uh, written. I think in all in quarantine. Okay. It's a like a bottle episode of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so John David Washington plays this uh auteur basically he uh and they are and zendaya is his girlfriend and they are as the film opens they're coming home from the world premiere of his newest movie which got really good reviews and he comes home very excited about it and so the whole movie is this clash between the two of them these arguments keep coming up and then just the their past keeps getting brought up and the way that they deal with it and argue about it is just is the entirety of the movie okay so 
both the performances are very good. The thing that I did not like about it is that you can tell that Sam Levinson, who I am unfamiliar with, I'll admit, mm -hmm. but um, he just kind of felt compelled to shoehorn these digs at critics uh, oh. into the the film. So, like I said, he's a director and he has all of these grievances against critics and how black filmmakers are perceived in the media and how they're huh. reviewed by critics and how uh, he feels he is being portrayed uh, even with a positive review of, okay. um, of these critics for his film. Um, hmm. And that if, if that would have been taken out, I think the film would have been a little bit better, maybe not okay. a whole lot. Um, I found myself asking like the whole time, almost like they, they do have periods where they get along and they're okay together mm -hmm. and their chemistry is really good throughout, uh, even when they're yelling at each other. Um, but I found myself wondering like, why do I want to see these people work it out? Why do I care hmm. about them together as a couple? And that is one of the biggest things against it. Um, gotcha. I mean, it, it looks great. The performances, like I said, are really great. Um, but it's just those, those script problems that really hold it back. Really? Gotcha. Yeah. Huh? Um, that's interesting. Cause I, I like Zendaya and I really like John David Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, is there, and this might be spoilers, but is there a scene where he is um, upset over the length of time that uh, from him ordering hot sauce and going into a kitchen? <laughs> Stupid tenant joke. I actually really no, like that no, line, there, tenant. There isn't, but uh, they do go into turnstiles at one point, and it's shot in black and white, but uh, the, the turnstiles are in blue and red. Uh, and also, um, Kenneth Branagh pops in and okay. for a moment to that, do some groveling. That tracks. That yeah. tracks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll probably check it out. I'm very, um, curious about it. Um, yeah. It's it the, the main thing that I had heard about it in the lead up to it was this quote unquote controversy about the age gap between the two of them. Yeah. Which, yes, that is on its face kind of weird, mm. but the film justifies it. Okay. Uh, and I'm not going to give away why, but uh, it, it justifies why they're together. Okay. So I, I didn't have a problem with that. Yeah. I mean, they're both adults. So. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um. And it's not even like a super sexual movie. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it, it could have been gross for sure, but I I didn't feel like it was gross. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um. Cool. Well, uh, do you, do you want me to do my paper? Sure. Okay. Uh, so I don't really have much, but, uh, I will say, um, on tower junkies here, probably in a few weeks, I don't know, uh, tiny and I are going to do a, 
an episode about the Outsider novel and miniseries on HBO. Um, and I have watched two episodes of it, and I like it. Um, it's it's really good. Um, that's about it. I I don't know what else. Um, I have watched Family Guy against my better judgment. Um, yeah, I don't know. It it's yeah, I got nothing. Yeah, you you can go and watch the before trilogy and insert your thoughts. Uh, yes, into this segment. <laughs> yes, I will. I really liked the before trilogy. Um, yeah, I will definitely do that. Yeah. Um, just, I, that was not a drop in. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, what else? I, I don't think I really have much else in the way of potpourri. I have not watched that much stuff like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I feel like I feel like I need to have something. Should, should we talk about Grown Ups too? Fuck no. <laughs> so I watch Modern Family. <laughs> okay. No, go ahead. No, I uh, I can't let this go. Mm-hmm. So I uh, recently re-listened to the Summer of Sandler series. Oh God! And oh God! In the <laughs> podcasting. Ugh. In the episode where you guys discuss Grown Ups too. Mm-hmm. One Matthew Hurt mentions. Oh fuck! I kind of liked Grown Ups Two better than Grown Ups One. Oh, uh, okay. And um, that I feel like should be litigated as a crime against humanity. To be fair, <laughs> I I think the comparison. I I have not. I I I have not gone back and checked the records or anything. I am I am certain that I probably said something like that. Um, I have receipts. Okay, just this is where you do the homework and insert the <laughs> right. clip from that episode. Yes, where you I might say actually that. do that. But um, <laughs> I. Uh, I think I Don't. tolerated it more than Grown Ups. The first one? No the first way. One. Matthew! No the first way. one was so offensively a cash-in, like they did nothing this to This one's a movie. sequel! I'm shocked. I'm shocked. But there shocked. Is some, there's some, there's some like little bit of, a, there's a little bit more of a plot and effort to it. Like, oh, In yeah. the second one? In the second one. Matthew. Come on. Yeah, did just, you watch them out of order and confuse them? <laughs> yeah, because there was absolutely there plot. no plot to this In one. the first one, there is no, this, this is a series. It was an excuse of, to go back It's an there. excuse and a series of poorly, poorly constructed. But also, to put it into context, I kind of <laughs> feel like that's akin to saying, you know, this is going to be crass. Um, this diarrhea I had is, is I liked it a little bit better than the constipation I had yesterday. It's like saying, um, hey, George W. Bush was no Trump. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, uh, yeah, I don't know. How how do those episodes hold up, by the way? <laughs> uh, there was one that had some audio issues, but other than uh, that, yeah. um, solid. Okay. Classic. Cool. Classic obsessive viewer. Yes. Oh, God. 2014. That was, <laughs> I can't count, six, seven years ago? Seven. Fuck, seven years ago. Uh, about time to pack it in. Um, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I did have, and this will be the final thing, and then we can end this episode. But I did have this really 
I don't know how to describe it. Um, a thought that I had that I, I would never, I would never in a million, million, like there is no reality where this would be a thing that I would do. But I thought, what if, what if I scraped everything about myself away from the internet, including (laughs) every podcast? Like what if one day it all just disappeared? Hmm. Um, Yeah. Maybe I watched, maybe I thought that after I watched Ikiru. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I thought you were going to say after you watch Grown Ups too. I wouldn't blame you. Yes. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I would never do that, but yeah. Uh, anyway. Okay. So we've got our assignments for next time. Um, I, I don't know what's coming up next on the podcast. I, uh, need to reach out with Fekus and figure out something to record with him. Uh, Kirsten and I might record something. I don't know, but coming up, uh, after March 15th, we're going to do an Oscars rundown episode nominations episode. So that should be fun. And, uh, yeah. Then coming soon. Ebert's Great Movies List, Part 8, featuring one tiny Ramian. So, look forward to that. And, uh, oh, before we go, Ben, your work, um, uh, do you want to plug anything that you've done, like uh, the reviews you've posted on Obsessive Viewer, or your Midwest Film Journal uh, series on uh, the uh, Happy Madison Productions? Sure. Um, Happy Valley Essays. Uh, obsessive viewer, uh, let's see, I have reviewed Palmer, the Mm -hmm. Apple TV movie, um, with Justin Timberlake. I reviewed the map of tiny perfect things on Amazon prime and I reviewed Junus and the black Messiah, which is on HBO max. Um, out of those, watch uh, Juice and the Black Messiah. Sweet. Um, Happy Valley. We are, we are truly in the valley. Um, God. <laughs> as of this recording today, uh, the Zookeeper review just posted, yeah. and next week is Bucky Larson, Born to Be a Star. Oh which, God. I mean, until yesterday, may have been the worst movie I've ever seen, <laughs> uh, and it still may be. We'll see. Wow. Um, God. Yeah. Uh, after that, um, I'm blanking. <laughs> uh, just more garbage. Just yeah. know that. Yeah. Ugh. Well, you're doing the Lord's work there. <laughs> uh, oh, God. I wish I had made a note of your AIM <laughs> handle from the beginning. Lazarus something. Yeah. Yeah. What was it again for the for the listening audience? Lazarus HP zero five. Just Okay. Don't ask. Is is the HP Harry Potter? Yes. Okay. It's hey. because okay. No judgment. It's because at the time people said that I looked like Harry Potter. Okay. Mm-hmm. I I could kind of see that. Okay. And then Lazarus, is it uh from the Bible? No. Oh, okay. Uh so only 90s kids would understand. Uh, there used to be a department court store called Lazarus, which uh-huh. quickly went defunct uh, in the late 90s or early 2000s. And so my last name is Sears. Sears, Lazarus. Hilarious. Lazarus was my nickname, I think, freshman year of high school. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> uh, that, this okay. is my last appearance. Thanks, everyone. That's, no, that's that's actually pretty <laughs> clever. Um, I don't remember or want to say what my AIM name was. I, I think I changed it a few times. Um, yeah, no. Um, Probably for the best. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Um, all right, well, uh, once again, check us out on Patreon, where you can get more of this kind of stuff at <laughs> patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. When you're born, they say like, oh, okay, what what streaming services will you have? And that is... It's like a Brave New World situation. Exactly. (laughs) So you can only have access to one streaming service for your entire life. Which one do you pick? And why? Okay. That caveat there at the end kind of uh, cements it for the rest <laughs> of my life. Um, I, I should probably also mention, I don't know if this matters, but I still have an Apple TV Plus subscription and I oh. still have not paid for it okay. since it was launched. Right? <laughs> they just keep <laughs> extending the free trial for nice. everyone. So I've got it free until July now. Nice. Uh, the Obsessive Viewer podcast is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV archive. You can also like our Facebook page and join the OV Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. And follow us on Twitter at Obsessive Viewer and at Obsessive Tiny. And follow our recurring co-hosts at I am Mike White, that's me, at R.A. Fekis and at Burger underscore Lurker. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com, T-E-E, public.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda 
at thesecularperspective.com. The theme music for The Obsessive Viewer comes courtesy of the band Loudlike from their EP, Mistakes We Must Make. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah.